0: It's really a pleasure to introduce an incredible public relations practitioner who I've known for many years now I actually met Chris Perez when he was an adjunct professor at California Baptist University where I teach But he's just having him teach there was such a benefit to the students because of his many years of experience in the field He's has over a 25 year career and has assisted over 80 diverse clients in public relations. He owns and operates his own PR consultancy and has held senior positions at Euro, RSCG, Fleishman Hillard, and Golan Harris, which are some of the world's largest public relations firms. He's an adjunct professor at Chapman University, and he has received numerous awards and commendations for his work, and he's also recently earned the APR designation. Just a really knowledgeable public relations practitioner, so I hope you enjoy his presentation. Thank you.
1: I like ice cream. I'm not much of a dessert fan overall. My wife would tell you I'm I'm not one of those guys that goes... Back to the dessert line, but my weakness is ice cream. Just love it. I I like a lot of different ice creams, but if I had to go with one, it would be mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate chip is the best of all ice creams because you still have the vanilla, which is good, and you gotta like vanilla ice cream if you like ice cream. But then you get these mix of flavors, chocolate, a little mint, and they're all different. Some are light green, some are white. Some have little teeny tiny flecks of chocolate chip. Others have big, chunky bits of chocolate chip. I like them all because mint chocolate chip ice cream is the best ice cream that ever was. It's, it's, just, it's just a matter of fact. It's just the best ice cream that ever was. Now, what's interesting is that I'm not the only one that says that. This is an article from a couple months ago out of Huffington Post. And if you can read it there, which I don't think you can, but you see the International Dairy Foods Association did a, a poll, a survey, and in fact, the best favorite ice cream of Americans is mint chocolate chip. So I'm not alone. I was thrilled to do this. And, and in fact, what was even more thrilling about this is that I was interviewed as part of the blog, and they put me in there. And the reason I was is because I'm the co-author of a blog called Scoopalicious. Scoopalicious, and if you can see what it says there, the ultimate scoop on making, enjoying, and obsessing over all things frozen. And together with my partner, We've tried every single, I, I can't say every single kind of ice cream because there's just too many homemade ice creams at wonderful shops across the country. The best mint chocolate chip ice cream is, in, at a little place flows out of Lexington, Kentucky. Wonderful place. Unfortunately, unless you're in Kentucky, you can't get this. So the, the most part we have to make do with what we get on our supermarket shelves. And I am just the biggest fan of Ben & Jerry's chocolate yeah, what was that thing? Mint chocolate cookie. Now, Ben & Jerry's has two types. They have mint chocolate chunk, and they have mint chocolate cookie. Chocolate chunk's good, but I think the chocolate overwhelms the mint ice cream. The mint chocolate cookie is just the, just the right blend. And, in fact, if you come on my blog at Scoopalicious now, you can actually get a coupon for a free little half pint of Ben & Jerry's mint chocolate cookie. So I welcome you all to do that. Marion, I'm sorry because you introduced me and you didn't introduce anything about my Scoopalicious blog. And that's because I'm just kidding. I, 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 right after worship and I'm here telling a big fat lie to everybody. And I'm, I, God, forgive me. I'm just, but I wanted to make a point. I, am not, I, I do like mint chocolate chip ice cream. But I am not the blog. In fact, the blog Scoopalicious, which is a real blog, is two lovely ladies in New England who have started this. And they really do travel around the country. Everything I said about it is true. It's just that I'm not the, the, the blog owner. So it's not, I don't have another side career being that. But I wanted to make a very important point to you. When I first started coming up here, and if we were together, you and I, talking in a, uh, uh, at the airport or in front of a store at, at lunch, and we talked about ice cream and we were talking about our favorites – Is that marketing? Is that branding? Is that public relations? What are the words? Of course not. It's just friends and people who know each other sharing an opinion about what we like in ice cream. The fact that I shared an article, a very real article, by the way, out of Huffington Post that was talking about the uh, International Dairy Foods Association. The fact that I shared that with you, well, now I'm getting a little bit closer. And in fact, if you had no interest in mint chocolate chip ice cream, and I was telling you in our conversation that there was this article that ran, and that mint chocolate chip was in fact the best one in the survey. You'd kind of, well, maybe I should give that mint chocolate chip a little another chance. It's been a while. Now, the fact that I said I was author of a blog on Scoopalicious and quoted in the article, all of a sudden increased my stock a bit. All of a sudden, if you were listening, as you were listening to me, the idea of my expertise in ice cream. Became much more credible. I wasn't just somebody talking at lunch. Among all of the people in the group, I had authority. I had a blog. I was being quoted about it. Now, finally, best of all, I endorsed a brand, a specific brand. And the next time you walk through your aisle store, two things might happen. One, You might see Ben & Jerry's and say, didn't I hear something about Ben & Jerry's? And maybe that would actually gravitate you, like, i got to try Ben & Jerry's. And if you have a really good memory, you'd remember uh, mint chocolate chip. And if you had a really, really good memory, you'd remember there were two types. Because there really are. And you would choose one over the other. And I went from a conversation where we were just shooting the breeze to being... Someone who could influence a purchasing decision. In a nutshell, that's what we're talking about today. Driving public opinion. Changing behavior. Affecting the way people think about something. And I've went through a, 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 a breadth of different ways that people are perceived. We're going to talk about that today. And uh, I want to thank Marianne for the nice introduction. I want to thank this wonderful organization, uh, And Jim Buchholz for inviting me to speak today. Um, I have spoken quite a bit on the topic of public relations and public opinion. And quite honestly, I've spoken to everything from fire chiefs to architects to now scientists, Christian scientists. I know I have to be careful how I say that because there's a denomination that way. Um, and, And it's wonderful. And what's wonderful about it, and I work, of course, in corporate America and, and represent, as Mary said, over 80 brands in my time, uh, companies, organizations, from the Red Cross to American Cancer Society to Toyota, and, yes, uh, Anheuser-Busch even. And I've, I've done all this. It, it, it really, when we talk about persuasion, public opinion, the tenets are the same no matter what the brand, no matter what the organization, no matter what the product so I'm very pleased to speak with you today, thank you very much for having me, and I hope over the next 45 minutes or so that we can have some fun talking about something that is very, very important. We're going to first start talking about, number one, why is it important, and, and not, not too surprisingly, it starts with the question of why. Know your why. Why is a positive message about the idea of science and religion so important? Why do you care? The I, I wanted to start with a reminder. This is a reminder for me. I, I, <laughs> you'd recognize this <laughs> from your website. And uh, from the very first day that you know, I, Jim called me. And I had to look up American Scientific Affiliation. No, it's not that ASA. It's another ASA. And I got it. <laughs> And I got it down and I read it. And the first thing that, that somebody like, like me does, who, who's in marketing and branding, is we look for the mission. We look, okay, what are you all about? And this was such a wonderful mission, such a wonderful mission, especially for, for a faith-based uh, practitioner like myself to see. And right off the bat, I love the fact that you use the word mission, unique mission to integrate, communicate, and facil- f- facilitate properly researched science and theology in service to the church and the scientific community. Yes, my underlines, not the websites. What an important mission. To be- we believe that honest and open studies of both scripture and nature are mutually beneficial in developing a full understanding of human identity and the world around us. You, I, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a more important mission. We're talking about the human identity, the environment, and the world around us. That is a wonderful thing to talk about. Which makes me say, how to answer the question, how to start with you by answering the question, what is your why? We know, you, you think you know why you're here, so we'll start with you. Each and every one of you have chosen to come to a conference this once a year, probably most of you have come many times to this conference. You participate, you're members, you read the newsletter, you read the blog, you, read the, you contribute and, 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 and like the fan page on, uh, on Facebook. You contribute to this discourse and dialogue. The question I ask you is why do you do it? Why is this so important to you? Obviously, there is something in this field of discussing and sharing your views between science and faith that is very, very important to you. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be paying the membership dues. So right off the bat, the core answer to the question why is I can't help it. It's important to me. It's part of who I am. The perspectives, and I'm not going to get into this perspective, that's for other speakers, but that's important to you. Let's go a step further. One of the reasons it's important to you is for your faith community. You want to share your views, your perspectives, why you, who you are, and what you do with your faith community. You want them to accept you. The same way you accept everyone in the faith community. You want to share this goodness of your life with them. Goes further than that. Your own personal community and lives. Your school, your PTA boards, your your softball league, your bowling league. The friends that you have. The the, the weekly card game. Whatever it is. These are people that you'd like to share this passion of yours as well. Goes further than that. Goes into your careers. Careers. In the universities and the labs, the place where you actually practice the profession and fields as the science fields that you are part of, you would like that community to accept you and accept your message. It's a wonderful thing to you. The more that can, the better you are going. The happier you will be. The happier the world will be. As a matter of fact, that's the final bottom line. Just like the the, the mission said to human identity. Uh, Relationships and, and uh, our environment. The message that you have with the relationship between your faith and science is good for the world. You believe that in your heart of hearts. Which means, I can tell you all now, congratulations. What we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is ta-da, an important issue. <laughs> the little colors. We have an important issue. An important issue to you, and that's what matters. Doesn't matter if it's not an important issue to the people in having a conference here at at Point Loma in the other building. It's important to you. So it's an important issue. And important issues is why public opinion matters. We've come full circle. If it didn't matter, public opinion wouldn't matter. So we're going to talk today about important issue of your part, your important issue, and how to. Uh, uh, tell that and affect public opinion. It's important to have goals, and I threw these up, this is just me. I don't know if, and I'm not checking this <laughs> with, uh, with Randy, I'm not checking this with Jim, I'm just kind of throwing out there that I think these are some of the things that I've gotten from researching your body, in your website, in your, your literature, and I see that one, you, you hope through, uh, through sharing and, and getting public opinion uh, raised about science and faith, you hope that Christians, you will allow Christians to better embrace your field of science. Make sense? Do I see some nods? Okay, good. Secondly, you want to encourage and, you know, try to get the non-faith science to believe in faith or religion is, is, a, is a whole thing, but at least you want non-faith scientists to at least open the door to the idea of salvation, to open the idea that there may just be more than what they see in the lab. That's a very important goal to you, and it's got to be, it's personal. You're working alongside these friends, mentors, peers, colleagues, and you'd like them to understand this wonderful message of salvation that we are able to embrace. And finally, for the good and betterment of the world itself, you want to increase the dialogue on science and faith. So does this seem about right? There's probably more, but roughly, I'm not too off, am I? Okay, I'm glad because I want to make sure because this is a because this is an important issue. <laughs> so. Let's talk about what public opinion is. And I often find in talking about public opinion, it's almost better to talk about what it's not. It's early in the morning, and I'm only going to want to see if there's maybe one or two of you that might be brave enough to tell me what you think public opinion is. Just, just one or two of you. If you think, oh, at the top of my head, I think public opinion is this. I know, because I'm going to probably say and you'll be wrong. You're like, I don't want to put myself out there. But, you know, you were used to this. I'll ask to see if somebody, There's got to be somebody brave enough that's going to start to tell me, yes, sir. The average of what people will think to cause them to act a certain way. Very good answer. Good answer. One that I would expect. And one more in the back. You have to yell it, though. Whatever a particular person or politician thinks it is. It's funny. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I'm I'm glad to hear that that point of view. That's very good. Anyone? One more. One more if there's one more person that wants to kind of throw out a a public opinion. It's also what the media, we're going to talk about that as well. Very good. What I'm impressed with all three answers is that I didn't get. What I usually get, which just shows me why... why I, you know when you feel like you're the dumbest person in the room? This is what I feel right now, Mary. I'm around all these scientists, and I, yeah, but you're, you're reading my credentials, and I'm going, yeah, but that means nothing to what these guys are doing. And so uh, I, I'm hearing this, and I shouldn't be surprised that they didn't give what is the number one common answer. You know what the number one common answer when I ask that question is? The opinion of the majority. Could not be more false. What it is not is a majority opinion. It is absolutely positively not the majority opinion. In fact, it's not something that even the majority usually even thinks about. That's an irony to me. Public opinion does not reflect majority opinion at all. Not even close to majority opinion. Eventually, if someone does their job right, it can become a majority opinion. But for the most part, public opinion starts with a very minority opinion, which a couple of you made made the point of saying, politician, media, and that's what we're going to talk about. Sometimes, in fact, public opinion is not even logical. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and there's many, many examples. I want to give a few uh, that I think are are interesting, one that's older, that has fascinated me uh, for many, many years, the other one that is newer, that's beginning to fascinate me now. The first one is Halloween candy. How many of us at Halloween, when we take our kids, and I'm, I've got a couple of kids too, the first thing you do when you bring the candy back is you dump the bag and you look through all the candy to make sure that it's safe and that everything's okay. How many people do that with the Halloween candy or have done that with Halloween candy at any point? Even Valentine's candy, whatever. Okay. But the majority of us do it. 1958 was the first time an article came out, I'm going to check some notes here, that talked about the fact that candy and Halloween candy needed to be safe. Here's the irony. Ever since then, there has been articles, newscasts. Every Halloween, you can count on there being some place that runs. Okay, make sure you check your Halloween candy. You don't want to make. There are some sickos out there, and they're going to try to poison or do horrible things to your children. It's important we do that. In the New York Times in 1970 had this big article about the importance of it, and they based it on uh, something that had happened in a Valentine's Day uh, with some candies that came out that were bad. And it became all the rage, and Ann Landers and Dear Abby started saying, you better do that, and it became this big thing. In fact, in 1985, it had reached the peak. and in At in a, in a poll, ABC poll, 60% of parents feared candy, sab- candy sabotage at Halloween, 60%. Six out of ten parents feared that their candy might be sabotaged by people who were looking to do damage to their children. Since 1958, if I were to ask you how many cases there have been of intentional, key word, intentional, uh, attempts to damage children by adults through Halloween candy, I'd get various numbers, but the answer would shock you. One. One case and that case was a very disturbed father who wanted to get a life insurance out of his son and did, in fact, poison a batch of candy that was for the entire neighborhood. And he was prosecuted and actually uh, convicted and put to death in capital punishment. It's, it was real. It happened. Now, I'm not here trying to tell you don't check your candy. I mean, it's just a good idea in the world to you know, whatever they picked up. You never know if they picked up a rock or something, or a snail, and decided to put it in there. You know, It's a good idea to jump that bag of candy anyway. And, and I'm going to still do that, and I'm going to do it my grand. It really doesn't matter. But the fear factor is illogical. There's nothing to back this up. It's just not one of those things we worry about. In fact, the rest of the year, we buy candy all the time. Everybody's bringing it. To, we're getting it from strangers in school and everything, and nobody's checking any of that. But for some reason, on October 31st, not 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening, we're dumping the candy and making sure it's all good. And, and now we're taking out all the bad stuff anyway. It's gone, it's gone beyond that. You, know. <laughs> you don't need that. But you understand what I'm saying. Public opinion deemed Halloween candy dangerous, if there's a fear factor, but it wasn't based in any kind of fact. I said there was another one I was going to go to, and apologies if this is any kind of sensitivity to anybody. But there's currently 11 states have voted uh, based on voter fraud laws, voter fraud. There is a problem with people uh, fraudulently trying to affect elections and uh, stuffing ballot boxes, bringing up dead people, duplicating addresses, doing everything they can, they are doing everything they can to affect elections by changing what happens in the voter box, in the ballot box. This has been studied extensively by all kinds of groups and organizations. And none of the groups and organizations can find any evidence of voter fraud, primarily for two big reasons. Number one, to affect an election this way is very, very difficult. It's a long road to hoe. You know what one vote is, and we're talking most elections, dozens and dozens of votes, at least dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands. The idea of having to affect an election by... This one-by-one-by-one-by-one by one by one by one person is very difficult to do. And secondly, the penalties are very, very steep. If you get caught, there's, there's guaranteed uh, a jail time for it. We're, the, the country doesn't tolerate this stuff. That's not to say there's not mistakes. That's not to say there's not huge human error. Counting twice, uh, forgetting boxes. We just got to remember some years ago with hanging chads to know what kind of mess it is. So it's not to say there's not human error. But the intentional, purposeful, trying to affect voters via, you know, finding the dead people and everything, it's just not a big problem. It's not affected an election, according to the studies that have happened. Yet we have 11 states that have voted for voter fraud. There's something else at play, obviously. There's something else that is driving the public opinion. And this happens all the time. Somebody said politicians. Somebody said media. you That's that's exactly right. We're talking about individuals who have made it a mission to change and manipulate public opinion. So let's go into defining this then. If we said what it isn't, well, what is it? By now you could probably realize that only a small number of people at any time actually affect public opinion and, 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 and form public opinion. But, and this is a big but, that point of the media. Once the media and the people begin to accept an opinion, it can become fact, regardless if there's any statistics, regardless if there's any proof, regardless if there's anything to it. It can become fact if enough people start propagating it and it gains momentum. Also important to understand about public opinion is that we are very passive. We really don't care about most things. We care about what involves us we are apathetic about most issues in life and until it becomes something that is brought to us until it is something that is told it is important we'll still ignore it unless it really comes down to does it affect me and it's got to be made an argument and that's how life is most of the time we don't care about things and there's plenty of of theories and persuasion and communication courses that back all of this up but there's an opportunity then the opportunity is, is that if we're not caring and if we're so apathetic, those people that do have plenty of room to really find and, and build their cause, build the passion for their cause, build the arguments for their cause, which, again, is what we're getting to. We are Public opinion is driven by self-interest. And once you can involve people in your cause, the few, opinion can then propagate, and it's harder to change an opinion of somebody who accepts something, again, whether or not there's research to back it up. If you believe it's fact, it's going to be hard to change your mind. Now, it's not always, I've been kind of painting it as a, you know, kind of going out and change your mind uh, for something that is uh, uh, perhaps, uh, it sounds almost like there's, there's this nefarious way of doing it, but not always. And I'm going to give you a good example. How many people here uh, own a Toyota, Toyota, Lexus, Scion, something like that. I do, too. I have a Toyota Sienna going on 200,000 miles. We call it the van that can. We love it. <laughs> we, we do. We love our Sienna. I'm a big fan of it. Not, and I, it was at least 60% of the audience raised their hands right there, which is an amazing amount. It shows you how, how popular these cars are. How many people remember a couple years ago where Toyotas had a problem? Big old, yeah. Remember what it was? Brakes wouldn't stop the car. This was back in fall of 2010. Uh, started in the summer, big expose, uh, where people started saying that their their uh, Priuses, their Scions, a few Lexus, and a lot of Camrys were not stopping, that the brakes were failing. And at first, you remember what Toyota did? They denied it. They said, no, it was the it's the it's the it, the mat, it's getting stuck on the brake, and that's what's doing it. I said, no, no, no. And then the big expose came out in the LA Times. Was, CNN gobbled it up, too. And it was like, no, this is a problem. And then they said, no, it's an electrical problem. It's our, it's our subcontractor that does the electrical. And they were blaming it. Finally, after it just got worse and worse, and lawsuits are piling up, and studies are piling up, and everybody's now looking at Toyota, they realized, uh-oh, we blew it. And they did a full-fledged uh, apology, admission of guilt, basically said we are recalling these, we are fixing it. Uh, a big campaign ad to to show that they apologize. Big full page in the Wall Street Journal and USA, USA Today saying we care, we are taking care of this problem. For most car companies to go through this at billions of dollars, it's cost and will cost Toyota uh, when all the lawsuits are said and done. For many car companies, this would be devastating. Yet, I want a show of hands again. Put your hand up if you own a Toyota right now. Thank you. Keep your hands up. Now, only put your hands down if you will no longer buy a Toyota because of that problem that they had. Nobody. Me included. We're, we're about to buy, buy our first Prius. And we're very excited about it. And we're going to buy a Toyota. Despite the fact that their cars crashed and killed people and, and they didn't admit to it and everything else. It didn't matter. Because... My opinion is not easily changed about Toyota. For years, they did such a good job of showing me, of telling me why, of explaining why these cars were such quality made, that they cared as a company, that their cars were safe, that they were environmentally good. All of these things, that the fact that this problem happened isn't going to change my mind about Toyota. It probably would have if I would bought a Hyundai. No offense to Hyundai owners. Or Nissan. It probably would have. But for Toyota, oh, they can do no wrong for me right now. I, it's my van that can, you know. That, <laughs> it's, it's what it is. So I think you understand that it can't easily be changed. People can and do hold contradictory beliefs. That's the other part of it. I don't know if you can see the the cartoon here. It's a it's a politician. I support big and small business, I support workers, I support welfare recipients, I support defense spending, I support arms reductions. In short, I support everything that Americans of all political persuasion support. There you go. Perfect politician, just trying to make it good for anybody. And it's kind of funny when you see them all going on the campaign trail, depending what city and what state they go to, that message is changed to make sure that everybody there likes them. But the, the irony of it, it's, it's, it's an exaggeration, but the irony is that we're very able to do this. This is not unusual for us to hold contradictory beliefs. We can be very, very adamantly against government involvement in our lives. We can say flat out, and I think the last poll was 68% of Americans believe that government can do no right when it comes to managing things. But, but, if you ask that same poll, how well do you think our military runs? Best in the world. Best in the world. Can't do anything, can't do anything wrong, our military. And the few things that happen, it's the people. Not the, that's the system. Not the, well, guess what? For some reason... We just put this big old ocean gap between everything else the government runs and the military. They run that really well for some reason. Any logic to this? Not really. (laughs) Not really. There's nothing I can say. It's just how we are. We can hold, and we do hold, contradictory beliefs, even though we passionately be about something. We can still, and they they showed it. You know, it's uh, Tea Party people, hands off my Medicare. Wait a minute. <laughs> Didn't make sense. It's the same government. But that's the way we are. It's, it, we can be and, and are manipulated all the time, and we hold our, biz, our to be self-interests. That's the key. Self-interest holds everything to us. So. The key here. Good word. Next word I want to teach you. Opinion makers and influentials. And there's lots of books on this. Great magazines. It's been written about uh, in in cover stories. The words are kind of interchangeable. That's why I'm putting both up there. Opinion makers are influentials. People who are affecting and changing public opinion. Um, Here's the thing. In the world, in society, there's just a few of us. In fact, and you can see through there, different people in all these different groups. In fact, what percentage of the American public are opinion makers? On any given issue, only 10 to 12 percent of the population drives public opinion on any given issue. 10 to 12 percent. Very, very small on any given issue. Not the, obviously not the same 10 to 12 percent. Just on any issue, there's a small group that is shaping what we're talking about, and what we're doing. Who are these people? Who do we think they are? Let's talk about them. Number one, opinion makers have time and take the time to sift through all of the information and all of the research and the dialogue about a particular topic, to evaluate it, to form their opinions on a subject. They care. Sound familiar to a couple of people maybe in this group while you're here today? I think we're getting to a point here, right? You're two steps ahead. But it's, 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 it's people who take the time. Secondly, they embrace channels of communication. I mean, they are just media junkies. And not just traditional news media junkies. They are social media junkies. So right now, if you're one of those people that, "Ah, I don't like that Facebook, I don't like that Twitter, I don't want to touch that stuff. Sorry, you're probably not an opinion maker. Not in today's time. Not in today's age. Because they love, if you're an opinion maker, you love to communicate. Why do you like to communicate? Because you enjoy sharing this knowledge that you've spent time sifting through and acknowledging and understanding, putting together in an opinion. You really enjoy sharing that with people who are less informed about the issue. That's important to you. Remember what we started with, the important issue. That's why you're here. That's why many people do where where they are with it. And finally, sometimes these are official people. Sometimes they have a, a title. Sometimes you have a, a designation that says you should be an expert on this. But most of the time, that's not the case. We've all been in situations. Some of you who maybe have been involved with a PTA, at school, PTSA, I think they call it now And there was always an elected person, but there was one person in the PTA who, okay, that's the person. If you want to get something done, you go run it by her because she's going to tell you whether or not it's even possible. You know, there's in your church, in your, in your, in your faith community, and, and, and running things, you know, there, there's the, the minister and there's the person who runs the office, but there's like, there's that one volunteer, and that person's the one that, if you want to get something going, you better go and talk to him or her because that person's really going to start to get things going. Every group, every organization has these unofficial leaders, opinion makers, influencers that will influ- influence other people. And, again, it's even down to the softball team. There may be a captain and manager, but if somebody on the softball team says, you know, I think you should bat fifth today, you're going to bat fifth, whether the coach says it or not, because that's just the way it is. Everybody has Mm -hmm. these groups. It's what it is. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there for us. Now, let's look at some of these that we know on the official side, for example. Steve Jobs, uh, when he was alive, I think he was one of the biggest voices for what technology can do. So much technology out there, but when he opened his mouth about what it was capable of, people listened. A huge opinion maker, and the iPod story doesn't have to be said. So you've got business leaders, heads of corporations that have that natural role as an opinion leader. Of course, politicians. Politicians from starting with the president all the way down to even on the, on the city council level are opinion makers. What they say will shift And people will listen to them because they have that authority. Whether you like it or not, celebrities—they drive the public discourse. Man, when Oprah Winfrey said, "Read a book," everybody read the book. When Bono said, "The issue of poverty and debt reduction in Africa is important," people said, "Okay, then it's important." When he said, "Buy these red products because it will go toward," research and helping the people's lives in Africa, we bought red products. Celebrities, for better or for worse, have a huge voice in public opinion and are utilized by companies, brands, organizations all the time because of that. Again, whether you like it or not. Then you kind of have those that go, anybody know who this guy is? Dr. Oz. I'm not sure if he's on the professional official side or the celebrity side anymore. I think he's kind of going both, you know, kind of figuring out which way, but, you know, talk about somebody influencing I mean, there's people who are deciding what to eat because of him, how to live because of him. You, you trust Dr. Oz more than you trust your own doctor. Just, go figure. There's the media, talk show hosts. There's Rush Limbaugh. There's Rachel Maddow, a slew of others that are affecting public opinion. We've talked about the media, and that'll keep coming up as a recurring theme. Bloggers, anybody know who that guy is? Nobody knows who this guy is? Not Chris Perez, thank you very much. Perez Hilton. (laughs) Perez Hilton, Perez Hilton, I don't know how he calls himself, but he's now become the celebrity blogger because he wrote about all things celebrity, and now people go to him as a celebrity to talk about celebrities. And he's a blogger, and blogging community now is absolutely huge. They're they're opinion makers. And, And some of you are probably fans of certain bloggers. On, on issues. You know, maybe you're, you're a car nut and you, you follow one blogger because he's always you know, talking about cars. Or maybe you, uh, you're a mom and you listen to a certain mommy blogger that you have done because it's, it follows things like that. bloggers are a thing. And sometimes you are an opinion maker whether you want to or not. Anybody know that guy is? Come on, somebody's got to remember his face. Joe the plumber. Picked out of obscurity and I think he's running for Congress now. I mean, this guy is now an opinion maker. And he was. I mean, talk about just being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right, wrong time, depending on which way you look at it. He's running for Congress, so I guess it was the right place. Do not underestimate the role of the media. You can see by the people that I've given up there that this is a very important key driver of public opinion. If you can affect the media in all the forms, you can do, go a long way in affecting it. But again, many times an opinion maker is going to be you and me. And I think this is where it comes to where people are going to go, really? Am I, am I an opinion maker? And, you know, I'm, I put this picture of just regular people. None of these people are, are anybody. These are just regular people, a couple of people, somebody from a tea party, somebody from an Occupy, a teacher, uh, an older woman, somebody speaking – Everybody can be an opinion maker if they follow those rules that I put on the prior slide. Take the time to, to hold their opinion. And when it comes to your important issue, uh, in my research and my looking around, you've had some pretty big opinion, opinion makers. Some that go way far back. Some of them more recent. Some of these pictures I think you'll probably recognize. Uh, individuals in this discussion that have greatly affected the discourse between science and religion. And I'm not making any opinion of them one way or the other. I tried to get a balance between the Christians and the, uh, the, the scientists on this, but I think you understand my point. These people have helped frame what we talk about, frame the debate, for better or for worse. These people have made a difference. So, could you be an influencer? Well, the answer is that you probably already are. By the very nature of the fact that you are at a conference like this, the very nature of the fact that you are taking the time to learn and get as much as you can, not only about the specific subjects, but to embrace the idea that this discourse can happen and should happen, makes you an authority in this area. It makes you the influencer that can affect public opinion in a big way. A little scary, I think. Um, and it's not something you have to do. As I said, if if you're not a media junkie, if you don't care about media, news media, you don't get on social media, you're probably outside the field of it. If you're just concerned about your issue and not really wanting to share it much with anybody else, then you probably not have to worry about it. But a great deal of you are in a position to make a difference, to have your voices heard, to change the nature of the dialogue, to in fact get those goals that we put out, to open... The idea that more Christians can accept science, that scientists could accept faith, and that the world as a whole can be a better place because of this discourse. You're in the position to do it. I want to say one thing about this, because um, I started teaching at CBU this course. I, I, ta- I, ta- I talked to a lot of students. Uh, I've been a guest speaker at many, many colleges and one of my favorite topics, and whenever they call in a, a PRSA, public relations student groups that want to have professionals come in, they ask, well, what would you like to talk about? My favorite topic is ethics. I love to speak about ethics and communication. It's the biggest challenge for my profession. There's a lot of people who are unethical, and I don't have to ask you for examples of it. You know about these things. You've seen it every day. Um, the marketing and advertising, PR, branding fields, go back and have a long history of unethical behavior. And it's up to those of us in the profession, especially those of us that are faith-based, to actually make a difference. And I spend my time in my classes by week one and week two talking about ethics. And I make the point that what we're talking about in manipulating public opinion is not unethical. It better not be unethical because we have to answer to a higher power. And when it comes down to that, That doesn't matter what our profession, or what our clients, or what our organizations want. We must answer. And to that end, I want to reassure you with this little note from my note to my students, to you, that I don't ever—I am in no way ever suggesting that what we do should be anything less than 100% transparent and 100% truthful. End of story. So right off the bat, while there's lots of examples of of of, uh, unethical manipulation. And an immoral propaganda building that the words in and, of them, uh, in and of themselves are not bad and not evil and not wrong, we just have to do it right, so right up just understand that when I say it, how do we do it? Well, we do it through third party media that 's clear clear, clear. We do it through social media, not as clear to most of us, but that 's one, one good way of doing it through traditional community outreach speaking bureau, networking events um, uh, speaking. And, and having opportunities through self-publishing. Many, many, many people are doing that more. Not just the articles, but books and, and sending out things. that can A blog, some of you may even have a blog in here uh, that gets, has an audience. And if you didn't, and you, you, you might want to consider one. They're very easy to put out. All of these, though, an underlying uh, theme is that you have to use clear, concise, and predefined messaging. For this session, we're not going to go into any of this. But I'm very pleased to have seen that the uh, parallel sessions that follow, uh, many of them will be going through these tools. And I strongly recommend, I hope you're not leaving too early, that you can go visit some of these panels because they're going to give you an in-depth look at what we're talking about when it comes to working with the media, working with social media, and how you can actually do those. If I read the abstracts and the the panel descriptions correctly, it looks like they're going to be wonderful ways of kind of getting a good in-depth look at what we 're talking about here, but really putting it to action, so um, i 'd like to do it. The last thing i 'll say about what 's next kind of a recap what we 're talking about first of all it's clear, it 's clear you must be clear about what your why is i 've talked about it generally. you will be more specific. You have a more specific take on this issue between science and faith. You have a different angle, you have a specific way that you want to understand what is your why? Secondly, you want to be a student of media. I think I've made that point a few times. Third, you want to begin to think about yourself as a brand. This is difficult. This is difficult for people who are not in marketing and not in um, public relations uh, because brand has this sales and marketing connotation, and especially as educators uh, in the science community. I know that that's got to be a little bit of a jarring feel. Like, "Eh, it seems almost crass. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that whether you like it or not, we all have a personal brand. Again, whether you, whether you really want it or not, we have a brand. And social media has just opened that up even more. Because in the past, your brand was just what how people knew you one-to-one and how your colleagues might know you are... Uh, how, how students might perceive you. and Maybe you were conscious of the kind of person you wanted to be at work or in the classroom or among one of your friends. But now with social media, it's a, it's a huge microscope, a magnifying glass into the person that you are and what you choose to post and how you respond and the language that you use. And what used to maybe impact a small group of your, where you were physically is now where you are digitally. And that is a much bigger, broader world. So you have a brand. And when I say begin to define it, it means being more conscious of it, being conscious of your point of view and whether what you choose to post and choose to say and who to talk to and who to share it with is consistent with the messaging that you believe, this is what I want to say. Formalize the channels of communication. Not everybody is a speaker. Not everybody can write well well. Not everybody likes technology. But there's all kinds, as we went through before, different ways that you can talk and, and influence others. Some of you may even be brave enough to say, you know what, I want to start calling some journalists and reporters and talking to them about this subject, responding to them, writing letters to the editor when they write, uh, writing letters to journals and and responding on... on uh, colleagues' blogs when they are talking about it. People are going to come back and they're going to write about this conference. And are you the person that kind of comes back and gives a little comment about it? Think about what channels of communication work for you. That is all I have today, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, I want to say thank you. I want to give you good luck for influencing others. This has been, um, for me, a, a career that has always been about finding the good in uh, making the world a better place by sharing brands, by spreading the word, the good messages that people, organizations, companies have, and uh, by changing the public opinion for the better. Yes, there are plenty of examples of people who do it for the worst, Maybe perhaps make our polarized political platform the way it is where nothing gets done, perhaps get too many people trying to use change public opinion, use all these tools, to get people angry at each other. It is up to us, as people of faith, to change that direction and to recognize that all of these tools can be used for good and to better the world and to better each other. That's important to me. It's important enough that I appreciate uh, the wonderful professors at CBU who remembered me to say, we'd like Chris to come and speak to you. And it it, it warms my heart to be able to say it in a faith-based way to an audience, because I don't always get to do that. So I thank you for that opportunity to share something that's very personal to me, and I encourage you to take up a flag of your one personal brand, and most importantly, this important issue that means something to you, and take it to others, both locally and globally. So let me take some questions now, if I can. I don't know if there's a format for this. And if not, everybody gets, thank you. Anybody gets to, wants to go to the beverage bar early, and they get to go check out. they behind you, I think. Marianne, behind you. Uh, you,
2: you, you talked about creating a brand. So what, what components or, or what uh, do you need to consider in order to develop an effective brand that clearly Shows
1: in the do you, is your question referring to what things you need to consider as kind of personally individual, or is externally moving out? Oh. Okay, from an internal perspective, thank you for the question. Um, the, I think the most important part is what I said that public that influencers do—they know their topic, they are comfortable with what they're talking about. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't feel comfortable about persuasion and public opinion. Um, you have to at least know I have a voice. It's identifying what is my voice. We use the word uh, expert commentary, an expert position. You, you want to embrace the fact that you know, there's really no reason I cannot be a voice and an expert. You know the funny thing about that Scoopalicious blog? Two lovely ladies in New England. No formal training. No ice cream makers. You know, they, they didn't I don't even know what training you'd have to be an ice cream maker, quite honestly. But they just said, We love ice cream, and now their blog is literally followed by hundreds of thousands of people who love ice cream. You you don't need to necessarily be the only person. Too many times people think, Oh, I've seen that before, or so and so's talked about it. That's irrelevant. It's what you want to talk about. It's finding your voice. So first and foremost in developing your brand is 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 finding your voice. Uh, metaphorically. What do you want to talk about? Externally, it's again being comfortable with those channels that work for you. In the old days, 10 years ago, <laughs> our channel was really only the media and speaking opportunities and things like that, you know, you where you had to be almost of a certain level. You had to have that official nature to be invited or, or allowed to speak to a group. Other than that, it was more like the ice cream example where you're sitting around the cooler, like I said, where it's just you're talking, where you can still have a voice and you can affect public opinion on a smaller way. But now, with social media, we really have the opportunity. And everybody here is an example of this. Everybody here knows somebody that if you wanted to know a place to go to dinner that was whatever big city was near you, and you wanted, you know that person you ask of where the best restaurants are. I don't get out that much. I don't go to the fine dining. But you know who to ask. Or somebody who's like, you know, I don't go to a lot of movies. And I don't trust critics. But I, there's this person I like to ask all the time about movies or music. Everything else. We, we have all of these already. We, we already know. And, and, in fact, some of you, many of you are probably uh, influencers in other areas. Uh, I talk about the car person. You know, if I, we all have that person that we go to if we ever have a car question you know that's uh, somebody who's not gonna, I'm not great at mechanic and cars I know some people I go to because I know they will have the answer so it's okay to find first of all your voice and then find your communication through social media is the opportunity to really get that message out and if you love facebook uh, you'll use it if you're a writer if you really know how to write then darn it understand what a blog is about because people will follow you and they want to know what you're saying um, these these can be used thank you Yes.
2: Um, I wanted to I maybe follow up on that a little bit in terms of developing a brand and making some of state point of view and clear messaging. And I'm curious about, in terms of messaging, could you comment a little bit on how much breadth and, and diversity of topics you can cover versus just being a sort of more single issue focused camera, one thing how How does one navigate um, diversity and breadth of topics one can cover?
1: And, and it kind of goes both ways. One can be too narrow, and be only seen as something. When you you're frustratingly you saying, "No, I'm about so much more," but that's how I'm being seen. I had the uh, uh, opportunity was yesterday Saturday. Yeah. So yesterday was Sunday. Saturday morning to interview Rick Santorum as part of a, a conference that he was speaking at. Uh, and I spent about 30 minutes speaking with him. And at what point in the interview, um, he made a point to me that one of the most frustrating things for him out on the trail was that he never got the opportunity to kind of give a bigger story. That everybody was kind of putting him into this social conservative category that he was, by all you know shapes, an opinion maker for. And, 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 and no doubt that that was a, a focus, but he wanted to speak about more. He, why wouldn't anybody talk to me about foreign policy, he'd say? Why wouldn't anybody want to talk to me about other issues that are important that the other candidates are getting? It was one of the frustrating things that he had on his 12 debates that he did, that he said, I would only get asked the same question that, of course, pigeonholed me in a little area. So your question's very good. It's kind of like, how broad do you go or how specific do you go? And that's a personal decision. On the other hand, if you talk about everything, you talk about nothing. Because you're just so broad and you're just so, you know, it, there's really no expertise there. You, you have to find that happy medium. Now, there are some that are, you know, wonderful pundits about everything under the sun within, a, within a, in an area which is good for them. And if they have a book, and they've, uh, I've, I've, one of my clients has written a book called Doing the Impossible. Well, you know, that just pretty much opens it up to anything. <laughs> 25 Laws for Doing the Impossible. Great book. I recommend it. Doing the Impossible, 25 Laws for Doing the Impossible. And, and it was purposely made so that it really didn't matter whether you were a student or you know, uh, a professional or a clerical. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna figure out a way to find out Doing the Impossible within his, within his book. Uh, but that's his brand. For you, it may be, I, I really want to focus on this area of my expertise. And the good news is about that is that if you do it right and you become somebody who is respected, that people look at, that people listen to, you build your followers, you build your, your, uh, uh, your, your resume, if you will, of different places and people that you've talked to, it'll open the doors to other opportunities. Uh, that kind of goes without saying too. Thank you.
2: I, I want to speak or ask about your definition of opinion makers. And you said they were the ones who studied more broadly and more deeply. Well, this conversation is about science and theology and public opinion. And so the things that were involved that were not explicitly addressed were politics and social science. And they were everywhere in this meeting but not explicitly addressed. Well, I'm involved in science and I'm involved in local issues that are not explicitly science but have social science and politics unavoidable. I think that I read and contemplate broadly and deeply, but that doesn't make me a good opinion maker. I frequently encounter people who do not read broadly and deeply, but think they do. <laughs> and so I don't know um, where you draw the line as to opinion makers or just opinionated. And, and what, very that, good. Where, where
1: do you yeah, that's very good, and I, I love that. I'm going to use that. I'll probably use that sometime. <laughs> I got to tell you, that's very good. Uh, what is the distinction? Is is kind of a, a good point there. Uh, obviously, you have to be opinioni- opinionated to be an opinion maker. So uh, I think I'm going to add that to that list of things that you need to be. You, you really have to have an opinion. But that's what inherently I meant by understanding an issue. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, opinion makers, and I, I point to celebrities as being, I think, probably a, a one that we'd all understand, where, uh, you know, for the life of me, I can't understand why our culture feels so fascinated with asking celebrities about issues that they really have no knowledge about. They have no idea. But either way, we have to hear what Kim Kardashian thinks about something. It, it's just, I, I, it's, it's an embarrassment at times. And I understand that's kind of a problem with our society. So, sir, without question, you do not need to be educated. You do not need to have a, um, a well-rounded uh, deep experience with a topic to become an opinion maker. That is an unfortunate reality about the world. It just is what it is. The, the the good thing that I'd like to think is we can play on that field too. Those of us that do have and do take the time and effort to be uh, properly educated and have research that backs up uh, what we say have the opportunity to have a stronger voice. Now, yes, there's areas that I, I give a workshop on uh, verbal and nonverbal cues in communication. I give a workshop on how to communicate messaging. I train CEOs over an eight hour period on how to do media interviews because it's that difficult where they see themselves over and over and I critique their videos to show them what they did wrong and how when you did like this, it was really off putting on camera. You know, These are the things that you can go into much greater detail and obviously we're not doing that today. The good news about what has happened in the last 10 years with the evolution of digital tools uh, is that it's really opened the door to uh, being able to compete with the people that are doing it without the what that shouldn't be. Without question, we're getting a lot of voices in the mix now that have no business creating public opinion, yet they are. But without question, it opens the door to us. The reason I feel this is so important, the reason I think Jim and the leaders of this conference made this a topic, the whole topic of the of the weekend is because they have recognized we better embrace these tools. We, didn't, we better embrace this mentality of getting our message out because there will be plenty of other uneducated people, opinionated people, who will take advantage of the tools because anybody can. Everybody can use the same tools that I've talked about, whether you have a brain, uh, uh, you, have, you have one intelligent thought or whether you don't. So we have to get caught up. And ironically, I find that it is the professionals that have to get caught up. The ones that are just loud, they're taking advantage of They They took advantage of the medium from day one. So it's, it's, it is important for us to catch up and really realize, you know, we've got to be a voice too. We are opinionated, and we've got to make sure that we use the same darn tools that they're using because they're louder than us. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: for us. Um,
1: You're
0: welcome. I feel like we've all got a lot out of this. And um, I'm the associate director of communications for ASA right now. Ah, sure. um, I'm happy to say that, you know, we're, we broke 500 likes on Facebook today. And it's really exciting because we brought that up from, you know, maybe 80-something in a year. And, uh, you know, while we, well, we're starting to become communicators within our little niche of people. Um, one thing that Randy and I you know, I studied as a scientist, so I know enough about communications, like broad communications to be and um, we recognize this. And we're not really sure where to spend the few dollars that we have on marketing and advertising for ASA to where it'll be most effective for us as a, a really a corporeal network, like mm-hmm. a group of people that really do the most work when we're together in person and not, um, shooting monologues at each other online because we, you know, we've seen that that's not the best mode of communication for really, really sensitive Mm -hmm. issues.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, so can you, yes, it's a great question. I mean, we've been told to do the Facebook advertising and, um, probably look into that, but where else should we look? Like should we take out a Google ad, or would that just I mean sort of be tossing money to the wind?
1: Um, I don't want to get too much in the weeds. What was your name? Emily Absolutely let's talk afterwards a little bit. I don't want to get it too because that, that's a weeds question because we really could dive down into what could work and what could not work. Because honestly there are very specific things to answer that question. Because you are in a very Uh, unique position that you have the opportunity to be that learned expert voice that really does, to this gentleman's point over here, is not just opinionated, but uh, a true intelligent opinion maker. Which means that the focus needs to be on the content, not the sales. People who don't have content scream it from the mountaintops. Scream what little they know as loud as they can, and they buy it, and they will, put, they will put ads. It's effective because you can put money toward it, and you can say these are, and nowadays it's banner ads, it's a lot of Facebook social media advertising, it's Google AdWords, it's a lot of things like that. The focus, I believe, should be for this organization to focus on getting those individuals in the organization who are comfortable with it and having focus on them being the, the, uh, the message givers. And finding the spokespersons. Um, Associations often play a, a, a safety game where they have an executive director or one person that is considered the voice of the group. That's an old model. Nowadays, it's finding all of the other individuals on different topics and then finding the ones that are really embracing this media because if you can embrace social media, you can build the dialogue. It's not just about pushing it out. It's not just about finding people to like you and follow you on Twitter. It's about having the dialogue and then giving them content that they will share in their communities. That's the real nut that you're going to hear in the social media stuff earlier. It's not about just us pushing it out uh, in our little group, because then we're just talking to ourselves. But It's making sure that we have stuff that other people will take out and put in, and you're tagging them, and you're saying, hey, I have no no idea what your group is, but you happen to be a friend of mine, and you happen to be liking our group. I'm giving you something that you can put out over there. Now, they may have 4,000. They may have 400 friends. They may have 1,000 people that that they're tweeting, and they're putting out your stuff. You really do need to work on that. The only other thing I'll say is... um, I would definitely do some things to work on your SEO, that's search engine optimization ranking, so that when people are searching the field and typing in science and uh, faith of that, uh, the ASA organization comes up. I've, I noticed right off the bat that that's not as strong as it should be. So w- that's kind of a very practical. Uh, the other one is, is more of a uh, systems-based and one that you could work on over months uh, and, and a year to get that to that. Again, let's talk it later, Emily.
2: About, I mean, you, you talked about Bud Budweiser right? and you mentioned to me that the target audience wouldn't invite them to go to Target non drinkers It's not like you're going to get Right. You make commercials to get people already drinking. Now they're Budweiser, not non drinkers just to start drinking. That's today. correct. So, is the main target audience for us Christians, not the world? We have to get Christians to understand this relationship between science and faith. And maybe it's too big of a target to try to get atheists with being anti the approach time. Right. common. Should our main target be, look, we have a problem. It's just like Budweiser doesn't get everyone to drink Bud Light, we don't get everyone to drink science faith within the science, within the faith so it should be narrower, aren't Absolutely.
1: It, the narrower and the more finite that you can make your audience, the easier it is to start affecting public opinion. You start with the core, and it moves out from there. I, I, I have that slide that showed the people up front, and the, 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 the your faith community, your personal community, the science community, and then the world, because they'll all do the job talking. You build it. And, yes, Jim, 100% agreement. You have to find the audience. Now, whether that audience is faith-based or in the science lab or at the university level, that's up to you to decide. And, in fact, maybe there are, you know, uh, there's, a, there's an effort to each leg. But in none of that did I just say straight atheists. You know, I I agree with you that that's probably a mountain you don't need to to climb. It's probably better to shore up a solid group. You know, it's funny, as I use the word all the time of evangelizing. How ironic is that? Uh, Because I do believe that in our message, in brand messaging, you find evangelists. And... uh, Those are the people that will take it and go to a bigger group and to their group and their group. And that should be the focus. The focus is to work on the little groups in the community. And, again, that's what social media has opened up. That was very, very difficult to do 10, 15 years ago. The only way that you could do a small group to another group to another group was one-on-one meetings, community networking, things like that. Time-consuming, difficult, costly. And the return on investment was often would take years and years. You can build a brand now in months if you do it right using social media. Because you just focus on the right groups. You do a lot of partnering. You do a lot you find other voices that are going to agree and, and, and share with your voice and you bring those in and you start to build it. The interesting thing about Facebook likes is the difference between eighty and five hundred. Congratulations on that. But I'm sure all of you would agree, boy, we 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 need far more than five hundred. You know? but but it makes a difference because each of those people has a community. Each one of those people has a community ranging from 80 to 500, or 1,000, or 2,000, depending on where their voices are. So you can't underestimate the fact that where you would have to meet people individually, shake their hands, talk to them like I'm talking to you. Now with social media, boom, you have an opportunity to to, to, to build a brand and, and share your brand and share your story, your specific messages, much more aggressively than we ever have before. I can't say it enough. It's a, it's a tough thing for a lot of uh, individuals and professionals to hear about the fact, man, is that tool, are these tools, these ridiculously time-wasting tools that seem to be more toys than anything else, is it really that important? Yeah. It's not going away. This is not a fad. This is is a new reality, and it's a new way the world is communicating. And and there will be those that will just not exist because they didn't embrace it, and there will be those that, that do, and brand new groups and new people who started with it. So thank you for that. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.